Those are the bells of Altgeld Hall in Urbana, Illinois. It's a pretty important building here on the UIC campus, and there are more buildings across the state which share the same name. But have you ever stopped to think about who the building is named after? Well, the answer is John Peter Altgeld, most known for being the governor of Illinois during the 1890s. Throughout his life, Altgeld saw some amazing ups and downs. The son of German immigrants, he was born into a tough life of poverty. But from there, he rose to great wealth and prominence, being elected governor in 1892. As one of his first, and certainly his most famous acts as governor, he pardoned Haymarket Square demonstrators who had been accused of throwing bombs at the police. And for this, he was brutally attacked by the mainstream press and political sphere, with many labeling him the most hated man in America. But his political career wouldn't end there. He would get into conflict with President Grover Cleveland over the Pullman strike, led by Eugene Debs, pass numerous progressive pieces of legislation, and become incredibly influential in the presidential elections of 1896 and 1900, despite losing his own race for re-election. John Peter Altgeld lived an extraordinary life, one which, thanks to his contributions to higher education, is now commemorated across Illinois. In this episode, we're going to tell his story, and we're going to explore what his historic contributions mean for us today. It therefore seems to me most important that you, the people of the state of Illinois, should know your university. Is it doing what you want it to do as the people's university? You are the owners, and your decision is final, 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 final. Learning and labor, labor. For the people and by the people. The people's university. Hello, and welcome to the Learning and Labor Podcast, Episode 2. My name is Nico Johnson-Fuller, and I use he, him pronouns. Today, we're covering the namesake of an iconic UIUC building. And while most of this story won't deal directly with the events at the University of Illinois, I think the legacy of people who are commemorated on campus is an important part of the history and politics of the institution. And because of that, I think it fits within the theme of this podcast. The truth is, in episode one, we already kind of explored some of this by looking at the lives of Justin Morrill, Abraham Lincoln, and Jonathan Baldwin-Turner, even if only in a small part. And I plan to continue exploring these kind of ideas uh, of the people commemorated on campus throughout this podcast. I think this is important because it tells us about what and who the university chooses to commemorate, and often leads us to stories with many direct implications back to the university itself. This can definitely be said for Altgeld, who had a profound influence on the University of Illinois. And as I did in the last episode, this one's going to feature different quotes from relevant figures. And for this one, I've actually enlisted the help of some of my friends to read some of these quotes out, which hopefully will give it some more character. So before we get started, special thanks to Samir and Justin for helping out, and also to my girlfriend Muriel for reading some quotes. There's a lot of important sources I used for this episode. There's the articles Altgeld and the Progressive Tradition by Harvey Wish and John Peter Altgeld's Pioneer Progressive by Charles Madison, both from the 1940s. I also re- read some of two different biographies of Altgeld. The first from 1924 is Altgeld of Illinois, Record of His Life and Work by Waldo Brown. Something interesting that Brown noted is that it was actually kind of difficult to find a lot of details about Altgeld's life and like specifically his personal life. And he said that, quote, Altgeld made a habitual practice of destroying everything among his private effects that would be of slightest use or value to a future biographer. There's also another probably more celebrated biography of Altgeld, which shares its name, Eagle Forgotten, with this podcast episode's title. The author of that 1938 biography, Harry Barnard, lived until 1982. So luckily, I was able to find a few audio clips of him that I can sprinkle throughout the podcast. 
I did also find some more recent sources, which is always preferable, of course, but sadly, more of the in-depth dives into Altgeld's lives were pretty old. It seems like interest in Altgeld has waned over time. Anyway, as always, the link in the podcast description will include all of my sources and citations. So for this episode, I'm going to pretty much go chronologically through Altgeld's life, starting with his early life, his legal career, and going through all the important moments of his political heights from his governorship to his death. And after going through his many ups and downs, I'll talk about some of the key takeaways from this story. Because of the length of this episode and the content that I want to cover, I've decided to split it into two parts. So part one will cover up until Altgeld's famous pardon of the radicals convicted in the aftermath of the Haymarket affair, and part two where we'll cover the rest of his life and legacy. So by the end of this episode, I hope you have a better picture of a man who was possibly Illinois' most left-wing governor ever. I'm seated with, uh, at this moment, I'm seated with Harry Barnard, who was writer-in-residence at Roosevelt University. You may recall uh, he wrote Eagle Forgotten, the biography, the definitive biography of John Peter Altgeld, Illinois' great governor. While he would later become quite wealthy, Altgeld's early life was not defined by prosperity. As it would later be put by socialist leader Eugene Debs, John Altgeld was born in the throes of revolt. The year 1848 would be marked by revolutions across the European continent, including in Altgeld's birthplace, Germany. His parents, described as ordinary lower-class types, would wind up fleeing during the turmoil of this period. His mother Mary had family in the United States, and the Altgelds would settle there with them in Mansfield, Ohio. Here, his father, who was also named John Peter Altgeld, would continue his wagon-making practice, and the family would become farmers. They started with a small farm, but Altgeld's father would soon pursue more, and acquire a much larger farm. However, this purchase would not bring them out of poverty, but really the opposite, with the family going into a great deal of debt which would not be paid off for many more years. Altgeld Sr. was a strict man. On the farm, young Altgeld was forced to work long hours, from dusk to dawn, and if he came home from the neighbors later than 9pm, he would find the house doors locked and have to fend for himself for the rest of the evening. If this happened more than once, or he kept doing other things that his father disapproved of, he would be whipped. Socially, Altgeld didn't have much support either. Later reflecting upon his school life, Altgeld would not paint a pretty picture. I never had a real friend in my life. I have thought there must be something about me that repels others. It was so from my childhood. In school, the boys all picked on me. No one of them ever thought of protecting me from abuse. It was a crowd on one side, and John Peter Altgeld on the other. And it has always been the same. But despite all of this, there was something that motivated Altgeld at a young age. Learning. He would go out of his way to attend a few terms of school, learn English, and most of all, to read. His father didn't really approve of this, but he was able to make up enough of his own time to develop these skills. But before he could make it very far, history would drag its way into Altgeld's life. When he was 13 years old, the United States Civil War began. Ohio, a Union state, would begin recruiting soldiers from the area. Altgeld was swept up in the patriotic fervor of the time. A few years into the war, at age 16, he would volunteer for the Union Army. This was, of course, not supposed to happen. The age limit of the Union Army was 18. But Altgeld, like many other boys at this time, didn't really care, and lied about his age to get in. Altgeld's time in the Army would go on to shape his life. And I don't just mean in terms of his political trajectory, although the Civil War, I think, was important for him in that area, too. But specifically, the war took a major physical toll on Altgeld. While he was serving, he caught a terrible fever. 
I've seen some sources say the illness was probably caused by malaria, but either way, it was a quite difficult time. And a lot of sources have cited this incident as the cause of his health issues throughout his entire life. I'm not sure if that's medically accurate or that's exactly what happened, especially since a lot of these are really older pieces of writing that may have not had the same medical understandings as we do now. But regardless, it definitely had a major impact on his physical health throughout his life. Politically speaking, Altgeld was very enthusiastic about supporting the side of the Union during the war. Later, he would reflect upon the conflict almost poetically. Through dark centuries, the cry of the oppressed had gone up toward heaven, filling the air with thunderbolts, which finally exploded in one prolonged and bloody drama. When he was older, Altgeld would make explicit that he believed the U.S. Civil War was a struggle to end slavery and topple the power of the plantation-owning class. I don't know for certain if he felt that way at the time. It's definitely possible he just viewed it as defending his country. But either way, Altgeld's childhood, including his time in the war and as a poor farmer, were very impactful on the rest of his life. After he finished his service for the Union Army, Altgeld hoped to escape his small, isolated life in Ohio. But this wouldn't come right away. He worked for a few more years on the farm, helping his parents pay off their debt until his younger brothers were old enough to keep up the work. And he also tried his first romantic relationship that I've seen documented. However, his attempts with romance with Emma Ford, who lived nearby, would be unsuccessful. It's unclear to me exactly why, but a big reason was mostly that her father prohibited the relationship. After this romantic failure, he felt it was really time to go. What he really wanted, after all, was to be a lawyer another idea that had been rejected by his father, with his parents claiming that all lawyers were evil. And while an older Altgeld might actually agree with that sentiment, at least a little bit, at some point saying there was, quote, a meager harvest of lawyers with good characters, his parents' influence at the time would not deter a younger Altgeld from becoming one. However, his first job would not be in a law office. After studying a little bit longer in Ohio, he would first travel to St. Louis, Missouri, where he worked at a chemical plant. Many of his co-workers were also more recent immigrants, but unlike Altgeld, they were Irish. The odd one out, they would call him Dutchman. But this wasn't Altgeld reliving the social stigma of his childhood. Instead, he was actually quite popular among his co-workers. He was strong and a competent manual laborer from his time on the farm, and he earned a good reputation. But the work and the climate eventually got to him. While he was in St. Louis, he was hit again by illness. This moment appeared to bring him close to death. In the event that he died, Altgeld insisted that instead of returning his body to his family in Ohio, they bury him nearby, so as to not bother anyone. Of course, we know it didn't come to that. His Irish co-workers were able to take him to a nearby doctor, and after a few weeks, he ended up surviving. After this, he would move on and continue to look for work elsewhere, traveling through various different jobs in different states. But eventually, he would settle back in Missouri. Here, in the city of Savannah, is where Altgeld's trajectory would begin to change and his involvement in politics would begin. While in Savannah, while he did return to some of the work of his childhood, helping out on his employer's farm, he was also employed as a teacher and helped working out in a legal office. Savannah is where Altgeld's political career would begin. His boss and legal teacher David Rea was a local judge. Altgeld had always been quite studious, despite his limited opportunities and lack of any formal university education, and within a few months this became quite evident. Judge Rea reportedly told a friend that, Altgeld was better grounded in the principles of elementary law than his teacher. By 1871, Altgeld had been admitted to the county bar and could begin practicing law. And his legal abilities were soon recognized, as he was appointed the city attorney of Savannah. After a year working for the city, he decided to work independently as a lawyer, 
eventually developing a practice with Judge Rea's former business partner, as Rea himself would be elected to Congress in 1874. So before we move on and keep talking about uh, Altgeld's political trajectory, I think it's important to talk about what his politics were actually like at this time. Both Congressman Rea and Altgeld would politically align with the Granger movement, which, just as a quick aside, has no relation to the namesake of uh, Granger, U of I's College of Engineering. The Granger movement of the 1800s was a farmer's movement, prominent in the Midwest, that was exposed to the large monopolies like railroad companies that charged farmers exorbitant prices. They were more often aligned with the Republican Party. But in Savannah, the Granger movement actually aligned with the Democratic Party, as the incumbent Republicans were perceived as more connected to the monopolies in the status quo. So it would first be in Savannah, where Altgeld would become a member of the Democratic Party, where he would remain for the rest of his life. And it's also where he would first run for office. Altgeld would be nominated to run for Andrew County Attorney. After accepting this nomination, he would go on to defeat his Republican opponent by around 350 votes. Ending his private law practice for the time, Altgeld will devote his efforts into his new job as a prosecuting attorney. This period would provide him with a lot of important legal expertise and knowledge. But being a prosecutor didn't really fit well with Altgeld. He didn't feel like his job was actually pushing forward the ideals of justice it was supposed to represent. So, halfway into his term, he would resign. And a decade later, he would use this experience to write a strong criticism of the criminal legal system. But for now, he was still in Savannah. Although he wouldn't stay for too long. Once again, a failed romance was potentially a cause for his departure. Although the source of that story that Altgeld was once again prohibited from being with someone because of the wishes of her father are slightly less reliable. But regardless of the exact reason, it's clear that in 1875, Altgeld left Savannah. With a few hundred dollars, he began traveling looking for a good place to move next. One day, he stopped in Chicago, and after taking a liking to the city, decided to make it his home. The first few years in Chicago would be tough for Altgeld. Now working full-time as a lawyer, he struggled to find cases and make ends meet. For the first two years there, he had to live and sleep out of his office. However, in 1877, while his financial woes would continue for a few more years, his romantic life finally took a positive turn. 1877 was the year he married his wife, and it would be the same Emma Ford that he had originally attempted a romance with in Ohio. Emma was a schoolteacher who, unlike Altgeld, had graduated college, attending Oberlin. While the relationship had initially not been a success, things had changed. I'm not sure exactly what happened that led them up to getting married, but Altgeld would visit his family in Ohio pretty regularly, so he was clearly able to stay in touch with Emma as well. Their wedding ceremony was held in Washington, Ohio, and afterwards they would both move to Chicago together. All accounts seem to consider their marriage to have been a very happy one, although it is hard to know too much about the details. We do know that Emma Altgeld would be an important and trusted advisor throughout John Altgeld's subsequent ups and downs. In an 1890 publication, he notes that some of his articles were changed in their tone and character because of her, and described her feedback as, quote, unerring judgment and wise criticism. While it's hard to know exactly which of Altgeld's beliefs and actions were shaped by Emma, she certainly had a pretty massive impact on him and the rest of our story. So whenever I talk about different political ideas and values throughout this story, while I may be referencing things documented about John Peter Altgeld, Emma Galtgeld deserves a great deal of credit for them too. Bringing things back to Chicago, the newly married couple soon moved into a rental house in Lakeview. At the time, Lakeview was in the suburbs of the city, 
although as of now, it's been part of Chicago proper for at least 100 years. During these first few years, it was tough to make ends meet. But things started to change, and it all started from one very consequential meeting in 1880. One money-saving thing Altgeld would do is he would walk for his commute to work. On one of his morning walks, he was stopped along his way by one of his more well-off neighbors, and offered a ride in his horse-drawn carriage. His neighbor was a prominent lawyer, and as they made their way into the city, he offered Altgeld a job at his office. Although he didn't stay there long, taking this position offered to him on an impromptu carriage ride would be the first step that would accelerate his rise into the Illinois and Chicago political sphere. A year after he started working there, he split off to start a legal partnership, and soon after, his own practice, which would become quite profitable. So, after a few years of hardship, the following period would mark a time of unprecedented political and financial success for Altgeld. And while both his political and financial rise were happening around the same time, I'm going to delve into each of them separately, as I think it's a little easier to understand that way. I'm first going to start with Altgeld's financial rise. After struggling financially for the first four years he spent in Chicago, the next ten would see him rise from struggling to make ends meet to becoming one of the city's richest. And it all started with small investments in real estate buying a city lot for $500, selling it for more, and repeating that process. After a while, he was able to expand into larger properties, especially focusing on Lakeview, where he lived. This ended up being a pretty wise decision, as the city of Chicago continued to expand rapidly into that area. And over time, the scope of his business and real estate dealings would expand too. He wouldn't just buy and sell land, but also support construction projects on his property. Just a few years ago, he was living in an office building, and now he was the one renting them out. But it wasn't just real estate. Altgeld also invested in streetcar franchises, specifically back in his native Ohio. Originally, these streetcars were operated by mules, but eventually they would be converted to electric. However, there was one project that would be the most important to Altgeld, both personally and financially. That was the Unity Building, which he described as, at one point, the greatest ambition of his life. It would be one of Chicago's first skyscrapers, becoming the tallest building in the city at the time. And while Altgeld had become a millionaire by 1890, this business venture would still prove to be far too much for him to cover on his own, with the total costs amounting to $600,000. So, in order to finance this, Altgeld took out a massive loan to the tune of $400,000. This business decision was considered quite risky by many of Altgeld's associates. But he was confident that it's what he wanted to do. After all, Plenty of his previous real estate investments had been risky too, but he ended up very successful. And for the time being, the Unity Building would appear to be a good investment too. There was lots of interest from tenants, and Altgeld's overall wealth seemed stable enough to maintain control of the property. At the same time, in this growth in Altgeld's personal wealth, his involvement and prominence politically grew as well. After working for a prominent law firm and starting a successful one of his own, Altgeld was more connected than ever in the world of politics. This network of connections from his legal work, typical of many politicians, was not the only source of his political support, however. Over the next few years, he would begin to build up a base of support among two somewhat overlapping constituencies, labor and Germans. The reasons for Altgeld's support from these two were political and personal. Altgeld was already known for his more left-wing, or as they would be described at the time, liberal, views, which attracted support from organized labor as they looked for someone who supported changes to the incredibly archaic and exploitative working conditions at the time. Among his fellow German-Americans, Altgeld had some obvious advantages, including his ability to speak German, which would help him garner their support. But there was also a political element to this. Like Altgeld, the lives of many German-Americans were impacted by the 1848 revolution, 
Its radical politics, as well as the rise and influence of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, would be influential not just among Germans in Europe, but those in America too, and many of them would become important parts of labor and socialist organizations in Chicago. It is for this reason that these two constituencies were somewhat overlapping, as many Germans would not only have a cultural and linguistic connection to Altgeld, but sympathies with his more left-wing politics. In terms of his partisan alignment, Altgeld was, as always, a strong Democrat. While he admired the founding of the Republican Party and its leadership under Lincoln, he felt that, especially in Illinois, it had become far too captured by the interests of, as he put it, lobbyists and the rotten and slimy go-betweens. Simply put, he saw the Democratic Party as a superior vehicle to push Illinois politics in the direction he wanted it to. Going over his base of support and partisan leanings sets us up to understand the trajectory he would take after that. Over the next two decades, Altgeld would be catapulted to the highest office in the state, and become a huge political player nationwide. But in 1881, at the start of his newfound success, he was still pretty hesitant about getting involved in politics. While he was a strong believer in social reform and political change, he wasn't sure if he should be the one to lead it. His first experiences in elected office as a prosecutor, after all, had left him disappointed and pessimistic about the legal and political system. But over time, this started to change. The first step was putting his hat in the ring for a state senate seat in the early 1880s. At the time, many of his acquaintances were quite surprised to hear this news, finding out for the first time when they saw his name in the newspaper's list of potential Democratic nominees. And while he didn't end up actually getting nominated, this was a sign that his political ambitions were starting to grow. So what a change for Altgeld, now that he was motivated to personally get involved? While I can't say for sure, I think that we can look at his first major published work, Our Penal Machinery and Its Victims, as a sign. Published in 1884, the book detailed the many flaws in the criminal legal system, many of which Altgeld saw firsthand when he was a prosecutor. To get an idea of what Altgeld described in this work, I want to share a quote which outlines the central idea of the manuscript. One is naturally led to ask whether there is not something wrong with the system, whether it is not based on a mistaken principle, whether it is not a great mill which, in one way or another, supplies its own grist, a maelstrom which draws from the outside and then keeps its victims moving in a circle until swallowed in the vortex. In essence, Altgeld viewed the criminal legal system as one that, in many cases, perpetuated criminality. He saw many of the people stuck in prisons and jails as needing help, a need which had not been provided to them by the system. Instead, they were only pushed further away from rehabilitation. He also emphasized how these flaws largely impacted poorer communities, citing how fines as a punishment basically meant rich people could get away with crimes. I have to admit, when I first read about this, I was pretty shocked. Similar critiques to Altgeld's are quite common in the 21st century, but 140 years ago, there were people who saw the very same flaws. It's somewhat heartening to know that there are always people who saw these problems, but it's also sad to feel that many of them remained unsolved. At the time, our penal machinery was received well among the social reform milieu of Chicago. From it, Altgeld was said to have earned the friendship of Clarence Darrow and George Schilling. Darrow was an up-and-coming lawyer, and Schilling was an American Union leader who worked for the Arbeiterzeitung, a German-language radical publication with anarchist and socialist leanings. Both figures will come up many times throughout this story. The same year as Altgeld published our penal machinery, 1884, he ran for U.S. Congress. This time, he would win the Democratic nomination, and run to represent the 4th House District of Illinois against the Republican candidate. Unfortunately for Altgeld, Republicans were still by far the most popular party in Illinois, and he was defeated in this race. But while he didn't win, he ran a pretty good campaign, 
cutting down on the Republican margin for the district by 2,000 votes. In 1886, over 10 years after he was first elected state's attorney in Savannah, came Altgeld's second electoral victory. Like in Savannah, the position he sought was a legal one at the county level, this time running to be a Cook County judge. Once again, he would run as a Democrat, but for the first, and not the last time, he would also be supported by a left-wing third party. Altgeld's friend, George Schilling, managed to convince the United Labor Party of Chicago, of which he was a prominent member, to endorse outside of their party for judicial elections. And while they were not successful in winning many of the other offices, the United Labor Party's judicial candidates were fairly successful, including Altgeld, who would soon take his seat as Cook County judge. And while he had some grievances with the legal system, Altgeld began to enjoy his role as a judge much more than he had as a prosecutor. In the court, he had control. Judge Altgeld even went as far to cross-examine witnesses himself if he felt the lawyers were not doing a good enough job. And despite his somewhat unconventional style, Altgeld was a pretty good and well-respected judge. In 1890, after a few years in his position, he was selected by his peers to be the Chief Justice of the Cook County Court. At the same time, his radical political reputation grew. As a judge, he was able to practice some of what he preached in our penal machinery. He would often criticize the role of police in trials, arguing their commentary on a suspect's arrest didn't matter, and that their testimony would often just be an attempt to lock people up without evidence. To be clear, Altgeld did believe in handing out punishment and jail times for crimes with sufficient evidence, but his beliefs and practice as a judge did mark a significant departure from many of his colleagues. For one of his colleagues in particular, Altgeld would eventually find himself on opposite ends of an incredibly important case. This case is perhaps what Altgeld is most well known for, but his direct involvement would not come while he was a judge, but several years later. So, before we get into Altgeld's most famous actions, let's take a step back and talk about the political and economic context of the time, and what exactly happened at Haymarket Square on May 4th, 1886. This period was known as the Gilded Age. It saw huge economic expansion take place, but also incredibly stark inequality. There was a growth in large monopolistic corporations, and workers faced horrific exploitation. The state played little role in regulating the relationship between workers and their bosses. 60-hour work weeks were the average, with many men, women, and children working more, even up to and over 16 hours in a given day. The conditions of their work weren't very good either, and they were often unsafe and unsanitary. It was in this context that there was a rise in the labor movement. At the national level, union federations like the Knights of Labor, the American Federation of Labor, and more would begin to represent more workers, and together they would begin to stand up for many of the basic labor rights we have in the U.S. today. Of course, there were many divisions in these early labor groups, with diverging political reviews and often racist and discriminatory practices within unions. But despite their many issues and internal struggles, they represented the most significant opposition to the desperate conditions of many working people. This opposition was not taken well by the owners of large corporations. In this incredibly unregulated environment, the owners sought to do whatever they could to maximize their profit. In response, workers would stand up for their rights, organizing actions like strikes. And with essentially no protection for workers, the repression of these struggles often turned violent. Unsurprisingly, the wealthy elites would almost always have the state, the police, and private security like the Pinkertons on their side, outpowering the workers and stifling significant changes to working conditions. Altgeld would regularly weigh in on these issues, 
including announcing his support for arbitration in labor disputes. And while collective bargaining is now the most commonly practiced method of negotiation between unions and employers, this wouldn't become an established practice in the U.S. until decades later. In the Gilded Age, arbitration, a controlled negotiation with a third party deciding the outcome, was advocated for by many labor groups. This regulated option was seen as a much better alternative to the violent and chaotic struggles that were then commonplace when workers stood up for their rights. So, what happened in Chicago in 1886 was a culmination of these national conditions as well as the particular conditions of the city at the time. You see, between 1880 and 1910, Chicago was in a period of massive growth, and it would see its population grow four times in size. Many of its new inhabitants were immigrants, and many of them were getting organized. The Knights of Labor, the International Working People's Association, and the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions, which would later become the American Federation of Labor, or AFL, were organizing to make 1886 a year of nationwide protest for the eight-hour workday. They wanted an end to the strenuous long hours and demanded eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for what we will. Naturally, this national movement included the growing organized working class of Chicago. On May 3rd, 1886, as part of the national campaign for the eight-hour workday, a strike took place at the McCormick Reaper plant in Chicago. The confrontation at the plant between the workers and the strikebreakers would turn deadly when the police, on the side of the strikebreakers, attacked, killing at least one worker and injuring others. This outbreak of police brutality sparked outrage among the labor militants of Chicago. They called for a mass meeting the next day, May 4th, in Haymarket Square. The meeting did not immediately appear to be an event worthy of the fame it would soon claim. The turnout, which was an estimated 2,500 people, was much lower than the organizers hoped for. For most of the rally, there was little escalation. The mayor of Chicago himself, Carter Harrison, stopped by the meeting and declared it was a peaceful gathering. And Harrison, as well as many others, would soon just leave the rally, as the light rain made things less than pleasant. Soon, the crowd shrunk to just a few hundred people. Things were beginning to wrap up. The final speaker was Methodist pastor and anarchist Samuel Fielding. But during his speech, things would start to escalate. Seemingly out of the blue, a large group of police officers arrived, now making up a size comparable to that of the dwindling crowd. And what happened next is not totally clear. The police and mainstream newspapers would later go on to say that Fielden's speech provoked a violent reaction. But most reliable historical accounts show that when the police arrived, Fielden simply questioned why they were needed at the event at all, and noted it was a peaceful gathering. We don't know who did it or why they did it, but what we do know is someone at the rally attacked the police by throwing a dynamite bomb. It killed at least one police officer and provoked a panic. In the aftermath, it is estimated that seven police officers and four to eight civilians were killed, with dozens more injured. What had been a peaceful rally had turned into a calamity. The established forces of power, most notably the police and the media, wasted no time deciding who to blame. The radicals that had been giving the wealthy and powerful trouble needed to be put in their place. Eight prominent anarchists and socialists were arrested and charged with murder. Six of them had German backgrounds, and many of them worked for the Arbeiterzeitung, the German-language radical publication. So, why were these men chosen? Who were they, and where were they at the moment the violence began? And importantly for our story, what ended up happening to them? 
Well, August Speis was the first speaker at the May 4th rally, and the German writer for the Arbeiter Zeitung. But he had left the rally before the violence even began. Albert Parsons, a member of the Knights of Labor who had been fired from the Chicago Tribune for criticizing capitalism, also spoke at the rally, and also left before the bomb went off. George Engel, another German and a member of the International Working People's Association, was at home playing cards at the time of the explosion. And Adolf Fischer, a German anarchist, had also left the rally before the bomb went off. But despite their absence from the rally when the violence occurred, these four men were all convicted of murder and executed by hanging in 1887. And two more men were sentenced to death as well. Louis Ling, a German member of the Carpenters Union, would go on to commit suicide at his jail cell before he was executed. And Samuel Fielden, the final speaker of the rally, would actually live to see another day. While he was sentenced to death, his sentence was commuted to life in prison by then-Governor Richard Oglesby. Oglesby privately expressed doubts about the trial which convicted these men, but did not interfere any further to save their lives or free them from wrongful conviction. So Fielden, as well as two other German anarchists, Michael Schwab and Oskar Niebuhr, were kept in prison. At the time, Altgeld himself made no public remarks about the case. However, to the people around him, who were very concerned about what had happened, there was trust in Altgeld. Around this time, he privately told George Schilling, whose colleagues at the Arbeiterzeitung were amongst those executed, the following. I want to do something, not just make a speech. I want power to get a hold of the handle that controls things. When I do, I will give it a twist. Another of Altgeld's friends, Clarence Darrow, would personally become involved in this case. Darrow moved to the city of Chicago in 1887 and worked to free the convicted men as soon as he arrived. He maintained a close friendship with Altgeld after this, and Altgeld would later help Darrow become a lawyer for the city of Chicago. But the trial of these eight men, which today is widely considered a miscarriage of justice, was not seen that way by the elite of the time. As I mentioned before, Altgeld's sympathies were in this case opposed to another Cook County judge, Joseph E. Gary, who actually presided over the case himself. And at the time of the trial, there wasn't much Altgeld could do about it. It was not until four months afterwards that he became a Cook County judge. Once in the position, he would be forced to work with the man he would later describe as carrying out an act of malicious ferocity for his conduct in the Haymarket trial. But while Altgeld was not in power at the time the case happened, the subsequent period was still defined by the tensions surrounding Haymarket, and he would engage in the political discourse surrounding the topics brought to the forefront by the incident, as he had beforehand when he made his position on labor arbitration known. One of the elements of this discourse was the idea that foreign nationals, like German anarchists, were responsible for crime in Chicago. As an immigrant himself and a commentator on the criminal legal system, Altgeld was well-equipped to address this. He responded to an article making such a case and argued that immigrants played no different role than others in causing crime, and that they were actually important for some positive changes in this country. For example, he cited the fact that many states with foreign-born citizens helped in electing Abraham Lincoln. This response enraged a writer at the Chicago Tribune, who wrote an editorial about what he called Altgeld's malignant mistakes. To conclude the article, he stated that Altgeld must be a follower of Karl Marx. This would be the first of many spats he'd get in with the Chicago Tribune in particular and the news media more broadly. From this point, it was unclear what path Altgeld would take. 
1890, the year of this exchange with the Chicago Tribune, was the same year he had been elevated to Chief Justice of the Cook County Court. However, the next year, he abruptly decided to resign, surprising many around him. While he liked being a judge more than his prosecutor job, it still wore him down. Altgeld was once again fed up with the legal system, and he hated all the proceduralism and formalities of it. But most of all, he hated wearing a stupid robe. Okay, maybe that wasn't actually the biggest factor, but he definitely didn't like it. Calling robes a medieval sham and writing publicly about it. No robe ever enlarged a man's brain, ripened his wisdom, cleared his judgment, strengthened his purpose, or fortified his honesty. If he is a little man without a robe, he is contemptible in a robe. If a man is large without a robe, he is simply ludicrous in one. Plus, along with having to wear a robe, he was growing more busy with his business dealings and wanted more time to spend on his passion, the unity building. But despite his intent to become a private citizen, he would not leave the spotlight for too long. People were already beginning to ask him about an upcoming race, the 1892 governor's election. His response at the time, in public and in private, was that he wanted to stay away from it and focus on his other occupations. But those very same other occupations, like the unity building, and his wealth more broadly, would actually end up being part of what drew him back into the political sphere. You see, in Illinois, the Democrats had not won an election for the governor's office since 1852. They needed a candidate that could win, and Altgeld's money gave him a big advantage. So, the chatter continued, including from Altgeld's friends, Clarence Darrow and George Schilling. Would Altgeld be nominated for governor? And if nominated, would he accept it? Fairly soon, despite objections from some of his opponents, the answer became clear. Yes, and yes. And it wasn't just because of his financial resources, too. Altgeld was seen as a dedicated member of the Democratic Party, and had built up a good reputation and loyalty among many other members. Plus, the political tides across the country were shifting. 1892 was the height of the People's Party, known commonly as the Populists, on the national stage. The populists, similar to the Granger movement of Altgeld's past, were in big part focused on being advocates for the farmers. They framed themselves as fighting against the wealthy and for the regular people. And their message clearly resonated with many, with the populists going on to win five states and over 8% of the vote in the 1892 presidential election. So many Democrats thought that Altgeld would have a similar appeal, being seen as a fighter for the underdog. He came across as sincere, someone who was simply speaking his mind about what was right. So, in 1892, Altgeld was chosen as the Democratic candidate for governor of Illinois. They liked his money, his party loyalty, and his populist appeal. And those people who maybe didn't like some of his more radical politics could overlook it because of these other benefits. And their calculation paid off. With a combination of these factors and the Democrats' good performance nationwide, Altgeld was able to defeat the Republican incumbent, and in January 1893, he would take office. In doing so, Altgeld would make history, becoming the first foreign-born governor of Illinois. Now, the reason I've mentioned the events of Altgeld's life up to this point, including his upbringing in poverty and his first-hand witness of the failures of the criminal legal system, was not just that I think it's important to tell the whole story of his life, but because I think that these things really shaped how he governed. But there's also another important thing to keep in mind about him personally. He was a very careful man, who rarely made any major decision without considering it thoroughly beforehand. So, when he became governor, and his friends and allies, Clarence Darrow and George Schilling, among others, came to him, asking for the immediate pardon of the remaining Haymarket prisoners, 
he declines them, at least for the time being. Instead, he requested the full trial documents and began to study them alongside his regular governing duties. Altgeld didn't want to just show mercy, but be able to completely and fully argue on the merits of the case. I think this decision reveals another fact about Altgeld, alongside his carefulness. He really believed in the ability of people to think about things for themselves. His political philosophy was deeply rooted in an ideal that placed a great deal of optimism in human reason. When Altgeld refers to himself as a follower of Thomas Jefferson, which he did pretty regularly throughout his life, this is one of the things I think he's referring to, as there are certainly some other areas where they politically diverge. In essence, what I'm getting to is that Altgeld may have believed that if he made a good enough argument, the powerful forces that led to the conviction of these innocent men would be understanding of their pardon. So, on June 26th, he finally sent out his famous pardon. It was around 18,000 words, which is actually about the length of this podcast episode's script, although I didn't intention- initially intend to get to that number. But anyway, uh, in the room with him when he announced it were two men of note. The first was Illinois Secretary of State Buck Henriksen, who questioned Altgeld's decision. Altgeld reportedly responded quite simply. It is right. The second man of note was a banker. His name was E.S. Strayer. He was going to be the person to deliver the pardon to the location of the prisoners. Dreyer had been the foreman of the jury that had convicted the eight men accused of murder. Wrung with guilt after the fact, he wanted to help atone for his wrongdoings. Word soon got out about the pardon. It included many clear articulations of the issues with the trial. The packed and incompetent jurors, the lack of evidence for guilt, the prejudice of his former colleague, Judge Gary, and the state attorney's own admission of the innocence of one of the defendants. But none of that led the headlines of newspapers around the country. Instead, it seemed as if the entire nation was beset at rage with his decision. Here's how the New York Times reacted. Governor Altgeld has committed political suicide, and it must be that he acted from a conviction that blinded him to the quality and consequences of his act. It reveals him either as an enemy of the safeguards of society or a reckless demagogue who is incapable of understanding the spirit and temper of the people of this republic. It is a question whether the people of Illinois will endure his presence in their highest office for the term to which he was elected before his real character was known. The Chicago Tribune went further, publishing the following. Never did the governor of an American state, with the exception of those southern governors who issued secession proclamations, put his name to so revolutionary and infamous in a document. The governor had not a drop of true American blood in his veins. He does not reason like an American, does not feel like an American, and consequently does not behave like one. Yes, the Tribune really compared Altgeld, who fought in the Union Army, to the Confederate pro-slavery governors for this act. They would go on to refer to him as John Pardon Altgeld. Many sources claim he was the most hated man in America at this time. And once again, it was the crowd on one side and John Peter Altgeld on the other. But Altgeld stood firm. When asked if he regretted his decision, he said that he would do it again tomorrow if he could. The Haymarket pardons were said to have ruined Altgeld's political career, guaranteeing his failure to be re-elected. There were even considerations of impeaching him. And while it certainly was a big blow to have all the mainstream press against you, the idea that this would be the end of it all wouldn't be entirely true. There is a lot more Altgeld would accomplish in his term as governor, and he would remain an important political figure after that too. And while there was a great deal of vitriol directed towards him from the rich and the powerful, Altgeld still had plenty of allies. 
not just the social reformers, radicals, and militants, but lots of ordinary people who supported him, and those in the legal community and outside it who had changed their mind about Haymarket, like Foreman Dreyer had. With these people behind him, Altgeld was determined to chart a path forward and to keep fighting for his vision of justice. And it wouldn't be long before Altgeld had another opportunity to do just that. In 1893, the country entered a recession, spurred by a financial and banking crisis. The Panic of 1893 would prompt a years-long economic depression and impact workers across the country. Under these conditions, the exploited workers of the Gilded Age were even more ready to fight for what they deserved. This led to another of the most famous and pivotal moments of Altgeld's life. The Pullman Strike, beginning in May 1894, was a massive undertaking involving as many as 250,000 workers at one time. Involved in the strike and its aftermath were many important figures. American Railway Union leader Eugene Debs, who would go on to become one of the most important socialists in U.S. history. Democratic President Grover Cleveland, who would order federal troops to be sent against the striking workers. And of course, Governor Altgeld, whose power and influence as governor would be tested as the workers fought against their corporate overlords and the U.S. federal government. Unlike Haymarket, Altgeld was in power this time. How he handled the Pullman strike would be a major test. Would he be able to prevent the violence that shook the world after Haymarket? Or would we see a repetition of history? Thank you so much for listening to part one of episode two of the Learning and Labor podcast. In part one, we were able to cover a good part of Altgeld's life, but there's a lot more to explore in part two. So I definitely encourage you to check that out whenever you have a chance, or right now if you have time. I want to give a big thank you to everyone who helped out with this episode. I was able to enlist the help of some of my friends to voice some of the quotes from this episode, so thank you very much to Samir, who has voiced Altgeld, to Justin, who will voice Grover Cleveland in Part 2, and to my wonderful girlfriend Muriel, who is reading some of the other miscellaneous quotes throughout the episode. As always, all of my sources and citations are linked in the podcast description, and you can find a link to the document in the link tree. With that being said, that's all I've got for you in part one. Be sure to listen to part two, and bye-bye. Learning and Labor. Station WILL has carried a special program this week giving information about the University of Illinois. If you have been a listener to these broadcasts, you have heard more or less about what the university does, how it does it, and what it hopes to do. Thank you, Dr. Willard. Yeah, that's why I chose Altgeld for a biography, because uh, you mentioned Rachel Lindsay's poem, The Eagle That Is Forgotten. Uh, the, ho- the whole uh, theme of that is that here was a man who stuck his neck out for his fellow men, risked his career. That was why he was a great man.